1: So as we come this morning to submit to you, to proclaim your greatness, that we also, Lord, would submit to your work in our lives, that we may be men and women of you. And we thank you, Lord, for calling us, for choosing us, to bringing us to yourselves, Lord, that you may be glorified. And we pray that you would be so this morning as we celebrate your presence and express our love to you in varied ways. In your name we pray. Amen. I'd like to give a prayer of strength and praise I'd like to adopt for our prayer this morning is the words of David of Scripture. For there's no greater prayer than to give God's word back to himself. So if you would bow your heads and join with me silently as I lift up the words of David, a song at the dedication of the temple where he writes, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, from the grave. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, you, O his saints. and Give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me... I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. And by your favor, O Lord, you make my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. For you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. We pray this in the name of Christ, who has accomplished this for us. And God's people said, Amen. Take your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. 18-22, through 22, as we look at a new way to worship, as we continue the conflict with the scribes. In last week's passage, we read of the second incident of conflict between Jesus and the scribes. The first conflict, you may remember, was Jesus forgiving sins. They didn't like that. And the second looked at last week, they were complaining because Jesus was eating with sinners. The scribes were upset that Jesus would stoop so low as to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus responded that a doctor tends to the sick, not those that are well, and that a Savior tends to sinners, not to the righteous. With that response, Jesus was signaling that he viewed people differently than the religious leaders, maybe even ourselves. For Jesus viewed all of humanity, the human race, as a race that was in need of a Savior. Levi saw a man worth introducing to his friends, While the scribes were so self-righteous that they considered anyone else as undesirable if they were not like themselves. That observation had led us to consider and to understand that you and I must learn profound gratitude for the salvation that's been offered to you and I. Because we were like that, we ought to give it back. We also must fight against the delusions of self-righteousness of the Pharisees, And then celebrate the immense hope that Christ would choose us, even in our sinful condition. Amen? What a great spiritual truth. This week's conflict is going to be a question about religious piety. So here we are in Mark chapter 2, 18 through 22. If you have in your Bible, join with me silently as I read out loud. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them in verse 19, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Father, we ask first for your attendance to us this morning. Thank you for the Holy Spirit and its giftings. Work in our hearts this morning. May we not quench the Spirit with our Idleness or laziness of mind and heart. Lord, I pray that you would stir us to hear with open ears and open eyes your word, maybe for the very first time. And I pray that you would strike our hearts to respond to what you're calling us to do. And we thank you for your word that has been preserved to us this morning. Let me speak words that are edifying, that are building up. Let us know the difference between your words and man's opinion. Lord, give us discernment and wisdom. And we thank you for that gift that you give generously to those that ask of your children. Be with us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Instead of the scribes confronting Jesus this week, we're actually going to see that it's those that have been walking with Jesus and have observed both the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees and Jesus. And they're wondering, why doesn't Jesus and his disciples worship and do the same things that the others do. They know that something is different. But the question is more than an observation. As John MacArthur writes it, it comes across more as a kind of a critical rhetorical statement. In other words, why do you not express your devotion like everyone else? So that's going to bring up two questions that we're going to ask and try to answer this morning. That is, what is the what and why of fasting. What is fasting? Why did they fast? And should we fast today as disciples of Christ? So let's go to the first question. Is fasting is simply refraining from some type of activity, usually food, for a set period of time? As you may recall from our study of Mark, that Jesus himself did fast for 40 days and 40 nights while in the wilderness Religious fasting was observed, though, as a sign of mourning for sin, as we saw in the reading of Nehemiah. In the law, there was one fast, which was the Day of Atonement. We find that in Leviticus chapter 16, where God says to them, And it shall be a statue to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourn among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statue forever. So the Jewish law required really only one fast a year on the Day of Atonement. You and I know that day as Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement was a time to express sorrow for sin, though Israel as a nation would observe other national days of fasting. During the captivity, the Jews had added four more times of fasting. Religious fasting was observed as a sign of mourning for sin with the goal to humble oneself before God, normally to hold off God's wrath and pleading from deliverance. In Scripture, we see that King David and Daniel and Nehemiah observed special times of fasting. David, when his son was sick, Daniel and contemplating Israel's sin against God, and Nehemiah, as we read earlier, for those that were returning to Jerusalem from the captivity. By the time of the New Testament, as we reach here in Mark, the stricter Pharisees who had came into power after the captivity would fast up to twice a week, on Mondays and Thursdays, as a sign of their piety and religious devotion. However, as Luke tells us, their fasting of itself was hypocritical. In Luke chapter 18, 11 and 12, we see the attitude of the Pharisees in their fasting. When Jesus writes or speaks of them in Luke, he says the Pharisee is standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It's interesting, just as a side note, this is free, is that usually when we compare ourselves to others, we never compare ourselves to the Mother Teresa's. We never compare ourselves to the people that are good and people who do high things, is it? We always compare ourselves to more of a lower one to make ourselves higher. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So even in their religious devotion and their signs of piety, it exhibited their self-righteousness and their arrogant attitude. So when they asked, Why don't you fast? It really was a good question. This was a sign that all disciples and religious leaders did. Why are you not doing this, Jesus? I think it's a good question. Many of the questions that have arisen from these conflicts have been very good questions. To them, fasting was just a simple part of their worship. It was regular. It was expected. It was one of the ways they showed piety. They were devoted to religious works. And again, we have to put ourselves in their shoes, so to speak. They were on the other side of redemption. You and I stand on this side of the cross. They stood on the other. So it looked different for them. You see, they were still waiting for their Messiah, though an anointed one, who would come to deliver them. The people wanted to be ready, and fasting was showed a renewal of commitment and preparation. And that's who John the Baptist's disciples were. Remember in Mark, it says, repent, repent. And in the Pharisees, even so, they were looking for that time that they would be delivered from the curses. That's why you find both the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees' fastings. They were preparing their hearts for the anointed one. They were under the oppressing realms of both Rome and King Herod, who they hated. So when they asked, why don't you fast? They are in essence asking, why are you not preparing yourself for deliverance? You're acting like nothing is wrong. They may have even taken this non-fasting as an offense. That Jesus' disciples did not observe the extra fastings. You might recall that over the years of his ministry, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being both a drunkard and a glutton because he celebrated with those he ministered to. And From the Gospel of Mark, it seems that even some of John's disciples must have adopted some of these fasts in their practice while looking and waiting for the Messiah. Which is actually kind of strange, for you and I have spoken about John the Baptist earlier in Mark. You might wonder, why is it that John the Baptist's disciples, why are they still fasting? Wasn't John the Baptist pointing to the ministry of Christ and the person of Christ as the anointed one, as the Messiah? Scripture tells us that John the Baptist had made some very clear statements about who Jesus was. And I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to John chapter 1 with me. John chapter 1, 29-37, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Do you think John the Baptist was a little wishy-washy on who Jesus was? And what he intended to do? This is he whom I have said. After me comes a man who ranks before me. Because what? He was before me. But let me ask you, who was born first? John the Baptist. At least by three to six months. Look what he says there. He goes in, in verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the what? Son of God. John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. Now just turn over maybe a page or so to chapter 3 of John. And we're going to read verse 26 to 30. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing And all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Verse 28, you yourselves, he's speaking to his disciples, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, I am not the anointed one, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands in herems rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy is mine is now complete. And what does he say? His famous phrase, He must increase, but I must what? Decrease. John knew who he was, but why are we here in John the Baptist's disciples, now John is in prison during this time, and all of a sudden they're continuing to act as if the anointed one is still not here. They're still fasting and preparing their hearts for the Messiah. Unfortunately, only some of his disciples had joined Jesus, while others continue to follow John's teaching. We know that John and Andrew, and most likely Peter, And James were followers of John the Baptist, as many others were. His disciples, speaking of John the Baptist, had spread around the region, as we see in Acts chapter 18 and 19. Not even knowing about Jesus, if you want to take your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 18 very quickly. For we see Apollos is found in Ephesus, teaching, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Chapter 18 of Acts, I'm in verse 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So we think, well, here's a man who knows about Jesus. However, look what he says, though he knew only the baptism of John. He had never been baptized by Jesus or his disciples. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, and look at this, this is important, and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him, and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. He had a glimpse. He was doing well, but he didn't know it all. And even in Acts chapter 19, again, we see John's disciples had spread his word to the Jews across the the dysphoria. When he says in Acts chapter 19, verse 1, we read that it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He said, no, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Who is that? He said, they're really asking. And Paul asked them in verse 3, into what were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism, speaking of John the Baptist. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who would come after him. And Paul puts the fuller. That is, that person was Jesus. So the baptism and the ministry and the teaching of John the Baptist was, I'm pointing you to the one who is the anointed one. Somehow the translation had missed. They either weren't there or they did not accept Jesus as that anointed one. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on the Holy Spirit came on them And there were about 12 men in all. So even John the Baptist's disciples were still fasting, looking, and waiting for the Anointed One, the Messiah. Even though John the Baptist was very clear. In Matthew, we see the story that there was a time that John the Baptist did have doubts. When he was in prison, he sent some of his disciples and asked Jesus, Are you the one? Was I mistaken? Jesus replied to him and said, Tell him what you've seen. And they come back and tell, and it seems that John is encouraged before his life is taken from him. But even through the preaching of John the Baptist, many were still waiting for the Anointed One. But the only problem with their fasting, with their devotion, with their shows of piety is that they were not aware that the Anointed One, the Messiah, was in their midst. This was not a time of fasting and mourning and preparing your hearts for the coming. This was a time of feasting and rejoicing for He was in their midst, walking with them, eating with them, talking with them, doing miracles and wonderful acts of works. Jesus answers them when he asks, why didn't you not do like others do? He answers them in verses 19 and 20 back in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Remember the words of John the Baptist? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come, though, when the bridegroom is taken away, and for them they will fast that day. See, Jesus is using everyday life illustrations of a wedding feast. A Jewish wedding celebration could take a week or more. It was a time of great rejoicing in which everyone would be involved. This illustration, Jesus is the bridegroom, is just as John the Baptist alluded to his disciples. He says, "I'm not the main guy everyone's waiting for. He is. Jesus is the center of attraction. He has arrived. It's not a time of mourning. But it's a time of rejoicing. He's here. It's no longer waiting, preparing, and showing that we're ready for him to come. He's trying to get across to him that one doesn't fast when he's joyful, when his heart is full, when he's in the company of the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. He's here. It's not appropriate to fast and be mournful during a wedding feast. We know those types of things. This comes from real life. Solomon does write in Ecclesiastes that there is a time to weep. There is a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn. And there's a time to dance. And the coming of the kingdom of God that Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, is a time of rejoicing. Amen? Time, it brings celebration and that mourning to the house of Israel. They were to celebrate Jesus' ministry and message rather than critiquing it and breaking it apart and saying that it doesn't match what we're doing. Sadly, many were blinded who Jesus was and his offer of the kingdom. See, they wanted to take the teachings and ministry of Jesus and like a cloth, just take it, put it up, and just put it on top of what they were already doing. However, The time of celebration, as Jesus said, will be interrupted as he predicts in verse 20 when he says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast in that day. So this is a time of rejoicing. There will be another time of mourning as this refers to a sudden removal or being snatched away violently. This is an obvious reference to the time when Jesus is captured and his crucifixion. He says, then at that time we'll fast. And as we go through the Holy Week, as we read the last chapters of Jesus' last week there, we see that they will, they will scatter. They will be mourning. They will be afraid. They will begin to fast again. But until that time, it's a time of rejoicing. It's a time of feasting. It is a time of celebration. The appropriate time for mourning was going to be at the crucifixion of Jesus, not at His coming and His appearing. In verses 21 through 22, now Jesus wants to cement what He's trying to say here. Jesus is going to use two parables to emphasize why it is a time of celebration. Look at that in Mark chapter 2. Look at verse 21 once again. He says, No one sues a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for if he does, the patch tears away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear than is made. And the same way, my words, and now reading Scripture, he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Again, Jesus is taking from everyday life by referring to a a new patch on old clothes and new wine in old wineskins. Now, the first one is very easy for us to understand, as one would have to pre-shrunk a piece of cloth before sewing it onto a used piece of clothing. If not, when they washed it, the patch would begin to shrink, would then start tearing away at the stitches that were being pulled from that. I don't think in this day we patch. Anyone here remember the days when you would patch your clothes? That was fun. We would tear it and we would put patches on all the time. But you had to always wash it or buy it pre-shrunk. Nowadays, you just buy your pants with patches and tears and things of that nature. Different generation. So he's just telling something that they would understand. The second one, though, is a little hard to understand. And I'll have to admit that there have been many times I've had a hard time understanding it because I've heard this taught really weird ways. A lot of times people have used this to talk about new ways of showing drama instead of preaching or ways in which uh, contemporary music is better than old hymns. And, and trying to take this and put it on that has been very confusing to me. It's a little bit harder to understand since we usually don't see animal skins or use animal skins to drink from. At least the times I've been to your homes, none of you have handed me a goat skin and say, here, take a drag. In the ancient world, wine skids were leather pouches that were made from animals, and I suppose that's that's what leather is, but they held wine. They were soft and pliable, but they would come brittle with constant use. Eventually, they would have had to be discarded since they would burst under the pressure under the strain of fermentation. Obviously, they would do some fermentation in the vats, and then they would pour it in the wineskins. Obviously, as we know, wine continues to ferment. If it was new, it would grow and stretch, but obviously, as they got older, just like the rest of us, Bust the seams, yeah, some of you know it exactly. By the way, let's take this off the tape, but isn't it a great invention now they give you pants that have that relaxed fitting? I enjoy that. I'm still wearing the same size I wore 20 years ago. They're just more relaxed. But they would burst, and so he's taking something from everyday life. The contrast, though, that Jesus is making in these parables is the difference between new and the old. That's really what it's coming down to. The new wine and the new cloth just simply represents the new teaching of Jesus. The new dispensation, the new time of where Jesus is. They were before redemption. They're now living in the time where redemption is at hand. In this discussion, Jesus is essentially saying that his message of the kingdom of God does not fit with the existing forms of religion and society. It's no longer appropriate to fast and prepare your hearts for the coming of the Messiah because he's here. That's all he's really saying. However, the religious leaders continue to pigeonhole Jesus by criticizing who he eats with, what he teaches, how he lives, who he heals, and so on and so forth. And they're saying, you're not doing it like the rest of us. They're missing the whole point of who Jesus is. And his message, as R.T. France, who is an Anglican pastor, writes, that Jesus' message is really a new perspective that replaces traditional ways of worship. And we're not speaking about drums versus this, or piano versus organ, or you know, ties and suits versus board shorts and flip-flops. That's not what he's talking about here. He's doing things differently. He's teaching different. He's healing. He's feasting. He's living. This doesn't set well, though, with the religious leaders. We ain't never done it that way before, they're shouting. Why are you doing it differently? And in it, they say, we can't take you seriously. And they contend to reject his message. However, worship. And the kingdom of God cannot be confined to the old forms or the old way of worship. The old way of showing piety. The way of of looking for Christ or worshiping God. The wedding, the new wine, the new garments are all symbols of the new age that Jesus brings as the Messiah. Things are about to change, she's saying. The ESV Study Bible writes that the kingdom of God cannot be regarded merely as a patch over the regulations of the Mosaic Law and extra-biblical traditions that the religious leaders followed for their own self-righteous purposes. John MacArthur writes that the true religion of the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ. Now let me tell you this. Jesus is not replacing the Old Testament in this way but fulfilling it. He continues to write, John MacArthur speaking, he brought a new internal gospel of repentance and forgiveness by grace that cannot be missed with the old Judaism of tradition and self-righteous works or with any other religion. And the religious leaders should know this, for scripture many times speaks of a contrite heart and not desiring sacrifice and outward obedience. He writes that the gospel of the Lord Jesus is absolutely unique. It's matchless and exclusive. And here's where I want to come to as we're answering this first question. The point that Mark is emphasizing in this passage is that you and I and they cannot just add Jesus to our religion or to our religious moral system. It's not just... Add Jesus and store. And here's the problem, I think, as we look at them and us 2,000 years later. We just believe that Jesus is just another solution to our problem. We can take Jesus and Adam to our AA, our GA, our NA, and all the other A's that we might have. We might think ourself righteous, well, all I need is the teachings of Jesus, or say, I asked Jesus in my heart one time, and then we think that we're okay. To many people, that's all Jesus is. He's just a patch that you can slap on like a nicotine and say, I'm great, I'm ready to go. See, that's what John the Baptist's disciples, them and the Pharisees, that's what they're thinking they're going to do. Well, if Jesus has a new ministry, then he needs to fit into our system. However, they did not even understand the Mosaic Law. They did not understand the teachings of Christ as Christ many times had to say, let me tell you, let me show you where scripture speaks of me. And we are very much like those religious leaders of old days old. as We just want to add Jesus to whatever our problems are and say, this is what we got to do. Let me just add Jesus. Let me ask Jesus in my heart. Let me hold up a sign. Let me go to the harvest crusade. See, I'm one of you. And then we wonder why we don't see any power in our lives. None of those things are wrong, by the way. They're good and positive. So let us not think that I'm critiquing those. But it's not just at Jesus. To so many people, Jesus is nothing but a bumper sticker. Honk if you like Jesus. Give me another fish. Put another symbol. He's just something else to put on our our T-shirts and wear around our neck. That's not the Jesus. That's not the kingdom of God. However, Jesus is not just a solution to our problem, which many who were following Jesus, especially in his early ministry, were doing. Many were just following him because they just thought, man, he's a cool thing to watch. They were just wanting to be healed. They were just amazed by his teaching and his miracles. However, when things became tough, the majority abandoned Jesus It's fitting that we're sharing this message today on Palm Sunday where Matthew records that as Jesus was entering Jerusalem, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and the others cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road and the crowds then went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna to the highest! What a great day of rejoicing, Palm Sunday usually is celebrated. However, we don't forget the rest of the story because by Wednesday, only to hear them several chapters later saying, let him be crucified. Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. The people who just add Jesus and add water and stir, they're the first ones to fall when things get tough. Many of us know people who have followed Jesus who tackled Jesus and said, I'll add him onto my marriage, I'll add him onto my work, I'll add him on here and there and things will get better, only to see when those things get tough, they just fade away. Why? Because they never accepted Jesus truly. And I pray that there's none of you here this morning that have done so. But with any crowd, there's a percentage that maybe some of you are just adding Jesus, hoping that it all works out. Let me share: you, if you do that, you're not in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is much more powerful, much more impactful than a bumper sticker. Many are guilty of the same attitude. Crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. By just adding Jesus to the mix of things that help us deal with guilt or prop up our own self-righteousness. But Jesus is something much, much better. Amen? And I pray that you know that, Jesus. It's not a time of of fasting and mourning and waiting for a Messiah or waiting for one who can save us, one who can take away our guilt, one who can cover our shame, for it's been done. As we sung earlier, I think it was in uh, how deep is the Father's love for us. It is finished. That brings us to our second question should you and I fast today, for he has been taken away. But I would say the taken away is not a crucifixion, but is something much greater beyond. So I'll give you the short answer is yes, I believe fasting is something that we as Christians should do, not for mourning and not for looking for the Messiah, that he may come one day to save us from our sins, for we've been saved from the penalty and the power of sin. We're looking forward to that day that we're saved from the presence of sin. And may he come soon to do so. Fasting is a very neglected and forsaken, forgotten spiritual discipline. And as you can see from me, it's one that I probably have forsaken more so than the others. See, fasting for spiritual purposes communicates an earnestness and intensity for God. It gives physical expression to a spiritual hunger. Taste and see that God is good. Some of you got your one mouthful and that's all you've needed. But let me tell you, we shouldn't. If there's any binge eating that we should be doing, it's on the goodness of God. Fasting can be for a spiritual renewal, for guidance, for healing, for the resolution of problems, for special grace to handle difficult situations. It's an opportunity for you and I to ask the Holy Spirit to clarify His leadings and His objectives. It's enabling us to pray more specifically and strategically. So should we fast? I believe we should. Through fasting and prayer, we humble ourselves before God so the Holy Spirit will stir our souls and awaken our churches. Not that we may look for Him to come one day to take all these things away, but that we recognize that He has, and we're yearning for Him to come back. I want to give you five reasons very quickly to fast. Fasting is a cry for God's mercy. And you and I need that. Fasting is a cry for God's mercy fasting is an expression of sadness is it appropriate to fast now that Christ has come and the kingdom of God is in yes it is for we still are living in a world of sin our loved ones have rejected Jesus others have rejected Jesus and we pray for them so it's a cry for God's mercy It's an expression of sadness thirdly it's a plea for God's intervention and we need that even more so today it's a longing for understanding of God's word and God's purposes in life. And then fifthly, it's a preparation for battle. For in this world, you and I daily battle sin. And I don't know about you, but I get weary of it. The presence of sin weighs heavily on me bodily, spiritually, and emotionally. Is anyone else Feeling the same way? Do I stand alone? I think not. And so we fast till that day. The Bible tells us in Titus 2, 11 through 13, one of my favorite verses. I would encourage you, write this in your notes so you can underline it later. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. Amen? He has, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled. And that's what fasting is. It's a time of self-control and to live upright and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has not been taken away from us this time. For he has gone willingly to the Father where he serves as our high priest and our advocate and the seal of our treasure. And so there will be a day when he will return and deliver us from this presence of sin. Until that day, let us develop the discipline of fasting. I encourage you, would you join me on Friday? Fast one meal, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. For many are just adding Jesus and stirring water. We need to share with them. He's here. And he's coming again. Amen? Every head bow, every eye closed. Let's take a moment to pause, to pray, to consider, and to respond to what God shared with you this morning. I trust that the Holy Spirit is much wiser and more discerning than I. He knows what your heart needed this morning. And so for practical applications, the Holy Spirit will share with you how you should respond this morning. For some of you, you need to quit adding Jesus to the mix and just become a wholehearted follower of Him. Some of you may need to get to the point where you bring in the spiritual discipline of fasting, of praying and desiring God. For others, you may need to call on Him for the very first time. Whatever it may be, would you turn to Him and say, Father, send Your Spirit, guide me, direct me, let me respond. And the way he's called us to. Father, you are the almighty God. And you sent your son so that he may bring the kingdom of God and may arrive on earth with all power, with all glory, and the display of your greatness, and with that, fulfilling the law for us. Doing what we could not do. So, Father, we do repent of those times in which we just add Jesus to what we're doing, to our works of self-righteousness. We confess that as sin, and we turn towards you and trust only that you find favor in the works of Christ, that he accomplished what you required. And we accept that as a free gift. And so, Father, with that, Lord, I pray that you develop in us a desire, a passion to fast, not to prove how much we love you, to prove to others how strong or how pious we are, but to be a yearning of our own heart for that deliverance of the presence of sin, for your coming, for your judgment that awaits those that are children of wrath and the reward for those that have been faithful stewards. We pray for that this morning. In the name of your Son, who makes it all possible for us. Amen. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org.